Hi, this is Ned Siegfried from Siegfried & Jensen. As proud sponsors of BeliefCast, we hope you are inspired by Todd's weekly podcasts, which contain so many courageous stories of recovery and personal growth. Remember, it's not what happened in the past that matters, it's what happens in the future. We invite you all to work hard and be optimistic about your future. Enjoy today's podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Inspires Belief Cast. Thank you for tuning in week after week. You guys are amazing. I love you for your support. Uh, we're helping a lot of people who are struggling. Um, there's a lot of, uh, unfortunately, negative things going on out there right now. And uh, that's one of the main reasons why I do this is I want to bring amazing people on who have been through it and they've overcome it and now they're giving back. And today's no different. Today, we're joined by Rob Eastman. Rob, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm Absolutely. excited to be here. Absolutely. Um, quick shout out to our sponsors, um, uh, Siegfried and Jensen, Wasatch Recovery, Veracity Networks, and iHill Institute. Thank you so much for supporting me and believing in me. Your support is helping us get this out to so many people. Um, and I just want to, again, thanks everyone for tuning in week after week. And Rob, I know you're a busy man. you got a lot going on. And it's just it's a pleasure and an honor to have you in my office, in my studio here, to be able to share your story today. I appreciate that. I you guys that. are going to be blown away. Um, this guy has been through so much. But I want to give you a little background on Rob. Um, Rob is a highly sought after speaker and his message really resonates with everyone from the youth to parents to high profile corporate leaders. Um, he speaks to small groups. He speaks to thousands and thousands of people as well. His story, uh, he's been bullied. He's been, he's had mental health issues. He talks about religion, suicide prevention, his own addiction and things like that. He has a podcast called stand and fight podcast. Yeah which hopefully one day I could be on there. Yeah, so soon, <laughs> soon, soon, for sure. Um, you're, now, do I, I want to make sure I got this right. You're the wrestling coach at Bountiful? Mm-hmm. So do you know uh, Coach Wall? Yeah. Larry Wall? Football? Oh, absolutely. He was a coach while I went to school there. Yeah. So I've known so Wall So check a this time. out. He was my sophomore basketball coach at Brighton High School. Oh, wow. <laughs> that many years ago. And I'm telling you, I learned more from that guy than most any other coach that I've ever been around. It was it was amazing. Yeah, I think he's a he's a true coach's coach. Yeah, you know? he really is. My brother played football for him, and he has just amazing things to say about him. I didn't play for him, but my interaction yeah. in the hallways was, was always a, yeah. a lesson. Yeah, wow. So um, you're the founder of Eastman Family uh, Recovery Foundation, which we're going to talk more about. Yeah. You're a youth mentor. Um, I think you've been, you know, you're the tattooed motivational speaker. <laughs> um, and you're also the owner of Eastman Fitness and Wellness. I mean, the list goes on. You are doing so much. And that's what I love about your, not only your story, but how much you're giving back and trying to help people. I mean, that's got to feel good. It, Yeah, man. I I think all of us, when we get in that addicted place and we feel alone in a room full of people or not fitting in as a kid, I always wondered why my dad did what he did. My dad was a successful man and helped the community and, you know, school board president and state senator, all these things. I'm like, I don't want to be of service to anybody. Like, give me the money. <laughs> give me my car. Right. And now, like, I can't, I can't help enough. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I don't think, uh, I always wondered, he, another thing with my dad, he, he didn't like going out. Because people would come up and talk to him, be like, "You're the real Dan Eastman," and I didn't <laughs> right. get that. And now I'm the same. Like, I don't want to be. Yeah. I don't want the accolades for helping. I just want to go to less funerals. Exactly. Wow. You know. So it's. Yeah. I'm starting. It's coming full circle now that it's like okay. Now I see why he did that. Yeah. Wow. That's that's awesome. Well, you know, I again, I love your passion. I love your drive. It really inspires me. I like I said, I've known you from a distance for a long time. I follow your stuff. You're. You're amazing at what yeah, you do, that. and it really inspires me to do more in my life where I can be better. Well, I'd like to start off, let's just tell our audience and our listeners, like, where did you grow up, and tell us a little bit about your family. I was born and raised in Bountiful, Utah. Um, I have uh, my dad, my mom, three older sisters, a younger brother, and uh, we pretty much, my dad came, the only child. Um, we have a long history of mental illness in our family. Okay. So we just found out that his biological dad was in 
a mental institute by the time he was like 30 back oh, in wow. like the 40s and 50s so the yeah. full getting shocked and frozen and yeah you know and and his mother had told him that he didn't want him mm. or that he was a bad guy he wasn't around he was schizophrenic oh wow so then okay. his dad adopted him um ended up dying in a tragic car accident my grandma committed suicide a year later so Man. understanding all these things now being on the other side of addiction like all the things that my dad must have gone through and that he still became the man he was i didn't understand that when i'm young and You're in right. my own mental health and yeah so our family we were pretty normal you know he 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 provided great for us my mom was a homemaker and really good one at that you know the yeah crust was cut perfect off of sandwiches and our underwear <laughs> right. was pressed and, you know, right. <laughs> and very athletic family mm-hmm. and so we were all on comp team just running a million miles an hour and um i think the first problems came with me once i got into elementary school okay that i'm i'm currently writing a book and we, we can get into that later but yeah as i've interviewed some people and my mom and things like that that I was so bad ADHD that the school said, if you don't get him help, if you don't go to see this doctor, he's going to get held back or we're not going to be able to help him. Oh man. So I imagine in my dad's mind, he's like, Oh no, we're not doing this, you know? And so he gave me every opportunity. And, but as a kid, you're in and out of the doctor's office and you're asking your friends, what do they do when they go to the doctor and none of them have to go to the doctor. I'm feeling broken right from day one. Yeah. You start feeling like you're not good enough early on. So that happened super early for me. And so did the bullying. You know, I was a little redhead, fire red, big ears. (laughs) I didn't have, now they're normal because I had surgery, but right. You know, kids are mean. And, uh, was it the same group of kids or is it just, just kids in general? I feel like, yeah, I feel like everybody was, uh, pretty harsh how young were you when that started i think every day from kindergarten day one really and i was super small pretty spazzy you know didn't sit still didn't really understand boundaries um Hmm. you know i just wanted to fit in and yeah and uh that took me down a different road my other siblings they did pretty well Mm -hmm. um but yeah you know my dad was a car dealer as long as i can remember and you know, I felt like we grew up pretty normal. Well, let's go back. So were you ever afraid to go to school knowing that, okay, I'm going to go to school and I'm going to get picked on? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, I was LDS and all the parents in the ward or my leaders are telling me, if you get baptized, everything's going to change for you. And in my mind, all mm-hmm. I needed to change was I needed to be popular. I need to be able to sit still in class yeah. and I need to be able to do math. Right. So a big switch happened when I, I finally got baptized at eight. I think it's like second grade or, mm. or third grade maybe mm-hmm. yeah. that when I went back to school on Monday and none of those things came true is kind of when I first waged my first war with God oh, Okay. and the people who were supposed to keep me safe and all these different things. And, and shortly after that, I started thinking about not sticking around. So I didn't know that you could actually kill yourself. I just didn't, I knew that I didn't want to be here anymore. And and, and, uh, and and to have this at such a young age already, I mean, here you are still in elementary school and yeah. elementary school is supposed to be fun and good and learning. And, yeah. but here you are thinking, I'd rather just not be here. Yeah. It was a, wow. not a good experience for me. No school was, but definitely, yeah. you know, looking, did you share that with anyone? I mean, I know you're a young kid. You may, it's hard to explain it, but did you tell anyone you were struggling like that? I don't think I could put it into words, but I know I definitely talked about being bullied and things like mm-hmm. that. But if you think back at how we were raised in the eighties, yeah, men didn't express feelings. No. You just, you, you know, you walked uphill both ways in a foot of snow <laughs> and, and so we get true. that yeah. these kids these days would just be, you know, they wouldn't survive those, those right. upbringings. And I think it's kind of gone the yeah. opposite way yeah. in parenting today. But so it wasn't until I kind of like just started fighting everybody because I was hurting so bad inside that if they were going to hurt me, I was going to hurt them back. Mm. And, uh, it got to be sixth grade of just kind of making it through that. I had just got done with a, with a track and field event. And Mm -hmm. I had one, I'm excited. I'm walking over to get, you know, my parents give me a hug or whatever. And a guy stood up kind of by my parents said, if your ears weren't so big, you would have lapped them. 
And that was the first time my parents like, well, maybe he does get bullied and an adult did it. Wow. So shortly after that, it was the summer between sixth and seventh that I went in and I got my ears fixed. Okay. But as we know, conditioning, if you don't know what conditioning is, when you're told you're stupid, ugly, and worthless for six years, no fixing your ears is going to matter. Change your ears ain't going to do anything. However you want and and nothing's going to change. So I just got really good at wearing masks and being whatever you needed me to be because I figured if I was friends with everybody, then nobody would bully me. Yeah. But the problem with that is you're, you're never the real, true, genuine self. Yeah. And you go home and you know you're a fraud. Wow. So I was just living in fear now that if they knew who I really was or what I was really like, they probably wouldn't like me. And I sucked at school. Like I had tutors. I had to put in extra work and I still couldn't get it. And sitting still and, and it just didn't, it was not good. Wow. So this obviously continues to junior high and, and even yeah. in high school, I would imagine. Yeah. So, so when you get to high school, how was that experience? So I had one experience right in ninth grade where I had a gun and my girlfriend broke up with me and I wanted to kill myself that night. And I played Russian roulette and I ended up pulling the trigger two times. Wow. Cops came, took me home and my dad took me out in the garage and smashed up the gun and he, and he proceeded to tell me, he's like, do you know why you don't have grandparents? And I was like, no. Cause at this point we didn't know what had happened. Yeah. And he proceeded to tell me that. And he said, if you kill yourself, I don't know what I would do. I would probably kill myself. And that was kind of the, like, I don't want my dad to hurt. I love my dad. Yeah. So that, it, that pushed me where now I just have to deal with what I'm going through emotionally. I, I don't want my dad to hurt. And in high school I found weed. Hmm. And all that pain went away. And yeah. I had so many friends. Yep. And I think that at the time that it probably saved my life. But what you know what they tell what they don't tell you is that eventually you're gonna have to smoke more and more and more. Right. Yeah. And that's not gonna kill the pain. Then I added pills, then I added alcohol, and I was just pretty much a mess by the end of end of high school. The only yeah. thing that kept me semi sane was I was a very good soccer player. Mm-hmm. And if I wasn't on the field, I was off numbing the pain. Numbing the pain. Well, and what I'm also hearing, Rob, is that, you know, here you are, you discover marijuana in your life. But not only that, you started getting connection yeah. with people. Now, it may not be, it might be for the wrong reason. Yeah. But now all of a sudden you feel like you belong. And did the bullying, did it feel like at that point kind of stop? Uh, by high school? I was pretty tough and I would fight <laughs> yeah. anybody and yeah. they knew it. There was, there was one time I was up on Bountiful Boulevard up by the Bountiful Temple. Mm-hmm. And back in our day, we used to meet up school versus school. We'd have a fight with 10, 15 kids against each other. Yeah. And I remember walking through one of my big friends was walking in and this kid had pushed him down. I walked up and the guy was way bigger than me. And, and he's like, what are you going to do? And somebody's like, that's Rob Eastman. And the dude looks at me, he's like, you're Rob? He's all, man, I thought you were like 6'5". <laughs> so I had this, this had put the fear into the community. Right. Like, I was like, oh, good, my faking toughness is working. <laughs> like, maybe I won't have to fight today. But I got in a lot of fights and just <laughs> to the point where people knew if they said something, it was a pretty good chance it was going down, so it was easier yeah. just not to say anything. Right. So, which fueled another side of me that was not good, anger you know, and yeah. blaming everybody and, and, uh, yeah, that didn't pan out. Wow. Got yeah. A lot of trouble. There's Rob. Stay away. Yeah. Well, if you, if you guys are listening to this and you haven't seen Rob, he looks pretty <laughs> tough. <laughs> I wouldn't mess with him. I'll tell you that right now, but no, you, you're, you're a great guy. You're obviously doing amazing things. So you go through high school. It's a, it's a challenge. You, you're obviously now numbing out pain. Mm-hmm. Um, now let's get into the bulk of your story. I know you share this a lot, but our listeners need to hear this, just this journey that you went on. And if you, if you're okay with sharing with, you know, moving forward with that. Yeah, absolutely. So high school was like, I took photography because if you're in the dark room, you cannot come in there. If the light's on, not the teacher, not anybody else. Cause we're developing film. Oh yeah. We'd really be in there drinking beer. <laughs> Cause we were safe. Like it just, I, I perfected that skill of lying, cheating, stealing. Yeah. And unfortunately it felt good. Yeah. You know, getting 
drugs or whatever. And that just led into, uh, had a, after high school ended up getting a little, little trouble, cost me some scholarships, cost me some soccer opportunity. Mm. And, uh, shortly after that, my best friend killed himself. Oh, and, wow. uh, at that point, me and this kid, we it wasn't just my best friend. I've never to this day had anybody in my life as close as I felt to him, like a soulmate, if you will. Yeah. Right. And we talked about everything. And this kid, his name was Danny and he, he threw me a party for my 21st birthday. And, uh, by that time, you know, we'd blackout drinking and yeah don't remember much and i got a phone call about a week later from his mom asking if i'd seen him called from the cops if he were to run away where would he go ended up finding his truck up provo canyon and mm. uh, we searched for him for three days and there was a bad storm and so they called it off and so a couple days later a search and rescue went up there and found his body 150 feet from his truck wow. so at 21 and anybody that's either dealt with an addict or is an addict our maturity stunts. So I was probably acting about 15. Yeah. So losing that and thinking racking my brain, like, did he tell me he was going to do this? Was I too drunk? Was I too high to, yeah. to know this? Wow. And it's like the one thing that saved our lives just took my best friend's life. Wow. And as Utahns do, there's a little bit of chatter and somebody had mentioned that, uh, it was my fault that Danny never would have killed himself. He never would have got into drugs and alcohol. And, and I was the guy that provided that for him. And, uh, I went off the deep end and yeah. that's where I can skip 11 years because <laughs> right. I don't remember most of it. Really? I know I got yeah. married a couple times. Mm -hmm. I got divorced a couple times. I lost a whole bunch of jobs. And then that's when the Oxycontin kick over to heroin kicked in. And I started losing friends like crazy. Yeah. And uh, got to the point where I was an IV drug user and had just been to one of my friend's funerals and was driving home. And in, in my community, we didn't, and back in the day, obviously we had phone books and not the easy access, but there'd been one family that I could even think of that had talked about addiction, that had talked about rehab. So I'm driving home from the funeral looking in the phone book, trying to find a rehab to go to. And I right. found a place that could get me in on a Wednesday. It's like Monday. And at the time I owned a concrete company. And so I went down in Woods Cross and, and at this point I'm doing five, $600 worth of dope every other day. Jeez. So I went down threw most of it away, knew I'd get sick if I didn't use again yeah. before. And there was zero chance I was going to go to rehab if I was sick. <laughs> right. And, uh, I shot up and ended up overdosing hmm. and, uh, had a, the kid I was with checked and blood coming out of my ears and my nose and my mouth and checked and I, my heart had stopped and I wasn't breathing. So wow. he bailed and luckily felt guilty a few minutes later and called the police and they came down and worked on me and shuffled me up to got my heart going again and took me to Lakeview, found I had a brain hemorrhage and hurried me up to the U where I had wow. a few more flat lines along the way. And, uh, Spent 10 days in a coma and got yeah. out and came out of the coma. And all I could think about was using. It's like they were pumping me full of drugs, but it wasn't the street drugs that I was withdrawing used from. To. Yeah, exactly. You know, you think yeah. that literally dying might change your mind, but it didn't even slow it down. And uh, luckily, right after that, my parents got me into rehab. And that was my first experience with being able to talk about mental health, being able to talk about addiction, yeah. being understood and somebody having a solution. Yeah. Right. You know, we always, you know, I'm sure people talk about it all the time, but there's no yeah. solution. Right. You know, there's no action behind it. So I went to a nice place out in Orem and, and it was like a day spa pretty much, <laughs> you know, but it was great. Yeah. I did well. <laughs> and I got out and, I started playing soccer again. Like this is a decade later. And yeah. now I'm like, I'm a little bit healthy again. And yeah. I had not been like, I went right. from D one collegiate athlete to beer belly doing anything possible that I can that Man. would kill 20 people is on right. my daily use Man, to feeling good again, doing some, um, 
playing soccer on the men's premier league, running some triathlons, feeling good. Got my company back up and running, met a beautiful woman. She's LDS. Everything's like, Oh man, my life's coming back there. All the promises are coming true. It's all coming out. Yeah. And, uh, I went deep into like repairing all of the things that I'd blown up. Right. Sorry, dad. Sorry, mom. Sorry, everybody. I'm making I'm amends, fixed, everyone, yeah. you know, and the one relationship that I didn't address was my relationship with pain. And about 18 wow. months into my sobriety playing soccer, I blew out my ACL. And as we do, I'm sitting in the emergency room with a tongue suppressor biting down on it. Like I don't need pain pills. And they're like, well, you might cause you need surgery. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. at the time, my doc, my recovery doc was giving me Suboxone and his idea of how we were going to combat this deal was just take more Suboxone. So that worked for like two days and then the nerve block wore off and oh. within it was like, I hadn't been sober for five seconds because within an hour of that, I had a needle in my arm again. So I just gave up, had been married in the temple, Repaired all my relationships. So yeah. the amount of shame that came with that first dose was just so much that I didn't, there was, did no. you regret the moment you were after you had shot up? Oh. I mean, did you have that feeling? Like, oh boy. Oh, it was like, cause it you was, mentioned the shame yeah. feeling. Yeah. And it's, that's the thing is people think that, Oh, well, I'm just going to have a beer. If you were a heroin addict, I can promise you that beer's going to last about five seconds. Right. You're going to have a needle in your arm. I yeah. didn't do anything. I skipped straight to shooting Coke and heroin. Yeah. And that's what just surprised me. And I'm like, I just got married in the temple. I let God down. The dude that was just helping me out, yeah. my wife, my parents, how am I going to tell anybody? So I just retracted right into that shame, fear, lying dude from before. It was, wow. it was scary how quickly yeah. I turned into that Jekyll and Hyde and, and lost who I was just build a massive house down in North Salt Lake. You know, I'm making 35 grand a month, just killing Jeez. it. And now just living in fear. Like what if people find out? Wow. And, uh, <clears throat> that went on for about six months. My wife gets pregnant. She ends up catching me. Yeah, so you hit it for six months. Yeah. I mean, at least <laughs> she knew something was probably going on. Yeah. But yeah, she walked in, and I forgot to lock the door, and she walked in. She'd never seen me hire anything with a needle in my arm. It was wow. not a good uh, yeah. not a good introduction. And so, you know, with any mothers or wives or whatever out there, I, I understand the pain now of, believing in someone so much and then walking in and seeing them in that yeah. shape. And, wow. and it's not that we don't love you. It's just, that we don't right. love ourselves enough to, exactly. to care. And yeah. I tried to pull it together while my wife was pregnant and told her that I was doing better. And, and in my head, I'm thinking like, man, I can't take care of myself. How am I going to take care of this little baby? Mm. So I didn't get better. I got worse. And the day came for my daughter to be born and, I'm feeling good, right? And yeah. go in there and everything's good and they induce my wife and it's just fun and everything's going swell and then all of a sudden everything's just beeping. Doctor runs in, nurses run in and they find that my daughter's heart rate's going through the roof and she's not getting oxygen and she's turned sideways in the birth canal. Oh, wow. And uh, now I'm ramped up a little bit and finally get her out and get her breathing and by that time I'm just not feeling good at all and yeah. you know i you think that's an amazing moment and i held my daughter long enough to take her out show her my family take her back in and tell my wife i need to go shower and go straight to my drug dealer's house and it's like it got to the point shortly after that i don't think i i don't think we even lasted two months after that that i couldn't take care of myself i couldn't take care of my right. daughter you know taking yeah. diaper money and food money and using it for dope and and so she ended up leaving me and I ended up back on my parents' couch. And, uh, at that point I was like, you know what, this little girl deserves better. Yeah. And in my mind that meant me killing myself. And, uh, wow. every time I thought about that, it took me back to that conversation I had with my dad. I'm like, how can I do this with limited casualties? I'm like, what if I accidentally overdose? Yeah. Like, that sounds like a good idea. So I went out and bought eight balloons of heroin which would kill 
plenty of people. Kill a horse. Yeah. And uh, came home and shot it up. And uh, the worst thing happened. I woke up the next day. You didn't die. And at that point, I was like, is this hell? Do I have to keep living this misery? Or did God forget about me? And my parents knew I was in bad shape. I was down to like 128 pounds, I think. Wow. Something like that. Skin and bone, like bad. Yeah. And my dad came down one morning and handed me a paper and he said, read it. And I started reading the paper and he sat up the night before and wrote my obituary. He said, mm. I know you're going to die, but you're not going to do it in my basement. You need to get out. Wow. And, uh, wow. So I bailed and I was in my car sitting in downtown Salt Lake. You know, probably at any moment I could wave the white flag and, and right. go to rehab, right? But yeah. I was, the the pride, the the mindset of like thinking about getting sober again is so hard. And uh, yeah, because you had just gone through this. I mean, it. I mean, let's be honest with everyone listening. That's not an easy thing to do. No, to change. Change is difficult. Change is hard. And you'd already done it. You had yeah. built yourself back up, and I can imagine how that felt so deflating. Going, I, I can't imagine doing that again. Yeah. Right. You know, just the let down. What if it doesn't work? Right. What if, like all the what ifs. And yeah. so at this point, the only time I can see my daughter is if I'm supervised mm. and I needed to uh, get in my parents' house. So I set it up to where I could go up there and yeah. I wanted to kiss my daughter. I wanted to tell my mom I loved her and tell my dad I loved him. And on the way out, I snagged a gun and I went up above the Bountiful Temple and there's some benches somebody built across the mountain right there. Yeah. And I knelt down, I put that gun in my mouth and uh, started pulling the trigger and had this vision pop in my head of my of my daughter and my mom. You know, they have you do the pros and cons list in rehab, right? And I'm yeah. playing it through with my daughter. I'm like, well, if she knows me, I'll be a loser. I'll embarrass her. I'll let her down. Like any guy could come into her life and be a better father than I can. Yeah. That was easy. Then my mom was, you know, she's a religious and God-loving woman. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to pray to her God because he's never answered one of my prayers so that when he doesn't answer this prayer, when she dies, she can go look him in the face and say, you failed me. Whoa. And uh, knelt down and said a prayer. I said, I don't know anything about a still small voice. I'm going to need something a little bit louder than that. And if I don't get it, by the time I open my eyes, I'm pulling this trigger. And that was August 31st, 2009. And right as I started opening my eyes, I'm pulling that trigger. A firework display went off above the Bountiful Temple. (laughs) And shortly after that, I heard a voice that said, is that loud enough? And I was paralyzed Wow! and I fell down and I was crying uncontrollably. And, uh, I don't know if I believe in God. If I do, I don't like him. I don't know what I just heard, but I knew I couldn't deny it. And, uh, when I got the strength back up, I went home where I got up, I went to my car, drove home and I told him what had happened and uh, gave him the gun. And I drove myself to, uh, LDS hospital and checked in and, uh, following day is my sobriety day it was september 1st 2009 and that started a started a wild wild journey yeah wow well i'm glad you got that really loud answer right <laughs> it, and I that's mean, the thing with with guy like me is yeah. <laughs> he's like i you don't have to tell me you need something a little bit louder i didn't have a shotgun to shoot you like if i could pull that trigger myself like and, right. and i've had a few of those moments where it was like undeniable that's the only thing that could possibly ever make me feel like i was worth it yeah you know and uh wow we always feel whether it's the universe i don't care what you believe in universe negative energy positive energy buddha it doesn't matter but if we're not open to receive or looking or grateful or all these things, the only time we're asking is in those dark moments and something magical doesn't happen. The clouds don't part. We feel like we're alone. Yeah. And no matter what I did, looking back, there are so many occasions where, you know, nine lives, I use that 50 lives ago. Yeah. You know, so there's a reason. And I didn't know what that reason was. And so as I'm getting into sobriety, I wanted to, I'm not a religious man anymore, but I'm very spiritual, but I did have something in the eldest church and it's called the, what do they call it? The blessing. Oh, patriarchal blessing. Oh, okay. And one of the paragraphs says that 
I would have the ability to reach those others couldn't. Mm. And I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. Now I know exactly what now that you means. Know. Yeah. You know, so I went to another rehab and uh, this one was much tougher than the first one. <laughs> um, they didn't let us do Suboxone. They didn't let us smoke. They didn't let us do all these things. And so I was forced to level up. I was forced to look myself in the mirror. I was forced to do the steps. I was yeah. called out when I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. And I'm sitting there <laughs> crying about my life. And this dude was straight out of uh, an Aryan gang out of prison. Mm-hmm. Saw. Yeah, he was saw. like one of the sergeants. Yeah. And he was pretty terrifying looking. <laughs> and I'm sitting there complaining in class. I think it was like a, my fourth step or something. Right. He's like, when did this first start happening? I'm like, oh, my wife left me. He's like, no. When did you first start hating yourself? Mm. And that like, I zapped out of that 31-year-old body and I felt like I was in kindergarten again. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? He's like, you need to make comments there. Cause we have so much trauma in our adult life. If you yeah. work back that is busy work, you'll never finish that. Yeah. But it's so easy to yeah. tell a little kid that you're sorry. So I went back and I worked from my young age up and, uh, Man. it was, uh, pretty, pretty tough to look back at some of the things I got bullied so hard. And, and eventually I became the bully. I hurt a lot of people. Out of my anger, out of my pain, I yeah. did exactly to them what I hated that was done to me. So working through all of those different things and, you know, I worked the steps and quickly found that, you know, that sometimes, and I don't mean to disrespect anything, AA for me was a preschool. You know, mm-hmm. you come in, you learn to sure. tell your story, you get sure. some amazing tools. But when they said, look around the room and find that person that has something you want. I'd come from an amazing background and there wasn't much in that room that I wanted. So right, yeah. that forced me to go outside into that scary world of, of normies of people who hadn't walked into my shoes, yeah. but that were living amazing lives. Right. So I figured that they tell you to get one sponsor. I got five. I figured that I could convince at least one of them to agree with my mindset. <laughs> and <laughs> I quickly found that like, <laughs> how can five people not agree with me? That's insane. <laughs> and then, you know, that kind of forced me to get out of my own way and, yeah. and quit being Google. You know, I didn't yeah. have all the answers. Right. Yeah. You know, so wow, it's been uh, awesome. The one thing I, I'm looking at your screen here with you guys in the Spartan race. And yeah, the only thing that I was good at was athletics. Mm-hmm. So I started racing. Um, I was ranked top, top 150 in the world in obstacle racing in 2010 really? which was the following year after um wow. a couple years later took a cage fight at 35 years old off of facebook you did <laughs> talk about ego right like i'm tough i need to i want to get some <laughs> of this anger out yeah you know end up getting my butt kicked <laughs> i ended up fighting for another three or four years and, and fell it. in love I love it you know i, I went in there angry and planning on beating somebody up in front of people and on TV, you know, getting the, yeah. getting the limelight. And <laughs> I went and trained in that kid's camp and I had a true master coach who uh-huh. taught me all about martial arts, which is not about violence, but about honor and mm, discipline yeah. and respect. And I wasn't angry anymore. And the more I learned how to fight and control, the more confident I was and the less I needed to act tough. Yeah. Like wow. I didn't need to posture up anymore. And yeah. so now all these things are clearing out of my life that clouded it. Like anger will keep you sick oh, for a long time. Yeah. Playing the blame game, keep you sick for a long time. Yeah. So I went into extreme ownership, but the only way I knew how to do that was doing hard things. Yeah. So first nine months of my sobriety, just to give you guys an idea of the trauma yeah. that happened to me. Yeah leaving rehab my wife picked me up my daughter's like nine months old i get home we get home i get out she doesn't get out and says by the way we're divorced Mm. a couple months after that when my dad said he was done he meant it and when you don't pay your bills for 90 days guess what the bank comes and takes things yep my truck my house everything hundred thousand dollars into the house gone then at nine months sober my dad died so plenty of reasons to relapse. Yeah. Plenty of reasons to end it. And it was like, 
I needed the wife to make me look cool to other people. Yeah. Pretty wife. I needed the big truck to do the same. And when I couldn't pay for those two things, I needed my dad to do it for me. Yeah. Right. And God was like, I'm going to take those so that you can level up. This is your opportunity to decide what you're going to do Man. to make choices and deal with the consequence. And, uh, wow. that was the only way that I think if any of those things wouldn't have gone, I don't know as if I would have got sober. Yeah. If my wife would have stayed, it would have been a soft landing. Yeah. I needed to just bash my face off the ground, be left with nothing so that I could have something. Man. Wow. So as I move forward, it was four days after my dad died. I was running a freaking Ragnar and I hate running. <laughs> right. And of course I got to take the toughest routes. I got to yeah. take leg nine, which has the 10 mile run around echo. Yeah. And my family was like, Oh, he go run in his honor. I'm like, you go run in his honor. I don't want to go, but it, I ended up going and <laughs> it's two in the morning. You know, the late, <laughs> yeah. the late run the always late happens yeah, the worst time for sure. It's raining and I'm balling and I just can't pull it together. And about 10 minutes in, I feel him with me and I look over and I see this silhouette of my dad running with me. No and I'm like, okay, so I have to be emotionally broken down, physically broken down. And, and I get to see my dad like the addict mentality. Yeah. So I went from running weekend Ragnars or once a year Ragnars to becoming an ultra marathoner. <laughs> Not because I like running, but cause I wanted to see my dad again. Yeah. He never came back. Yeah. So what I would learn is you're 25 miles in the mountains and you're done. You can't move and you still have 25 miles to get out to get out. Yeah. You learn something about yourself. And in those moments, I learned more life skills, more about myself, more yeah. about discipline, more about God than I could have ever sitting in a classroom or anything. So I ended up running 13 ultras, learning what I could from that yeah. cage fighting at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, and I'm almost 40, you know, yeah. and, <laughs> and you know, I'm extreme in everything I do and yeah. I had to learn how to budget that. So I just started attacking my fears, anything and any on the planet that if I got a little bit sideways or like, nah, that doesn't sound good. Motivational speaking. Right. So I'm killing it in the rehabs. Right. Yeah. Or in AA, they asked me to be the speaker. Right, sure. I'm feeling on top of the world. Then my buddy was running KSL and I'm bugging him, like, get me in there. Let me get me on TV. You know, he's like, <laughs> okay, we're having an executive day, uh, empowerment day. Come and speak. Yeah. Do you know Dale Darling? I don't. So anyways, I go in there and, and it's at a bank and I'm thinking it's just in the little round room, whatever. Yeah. And I pull up and it's a big building. It just happens to be called the mountain America. building. <laughs> and I walk in, there's Nadine Wimmer. There's 150 execs in their suits and ties, a 40-foot big screen. The TV channels are there projecting her on these screens. And now my heart is pumping. This is not oh, rehab. Right. This is not an AA meeting. Yeah. So I get up there. <laughs> my confidence was not, I was not cocky anymore. And about four minutes into the speech, I don't remember anything. And shortly after that, Dale's asking me questions from the top to prompt me. Like, I blacked out. I stopped talking. I couldn't move. Oh, really? Like, Worst speech. I think it lasted a total of like maybe 12 or 13 minutes. And he's like, okay, good job. All right. Now next. <laughs> and I'm walking out and I had like one person be like, Hey, yeah, uh, good job. dude." <laughs> and I got in the car and I'm like, I am never doing that again. <laughs> and every time something like that would happen, I'd be like, then that's exactly what you need to do. You're right. I love it. And I so I started mentality. recording myself, yeah. seeing the body language, perfecting at you know, get handing out questionnaires of what part of my story impacts them. Like I wanted to touch lives yeah. and I wanted to not be afraid anymore. Yeah. And, uh, so I couldn't afford a therapist either. So I got a Pell grant and I went back and I studied only psychology. They're mm. like, you need to test into math and English. Yeah. I'm like, nah, I'm not no, getting thanks. my degree. <laughs> so same deal. I walk into Salt Lake community and sit down in class. I'm 20 years older than everybody else in there. You know what spotlight theory is? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I sit down for whatever reason. The teacher looks at me. He's like, are you okay? I'm already sweating. And then the whole <laughs> room looks at me. I grab my backpack. I get up and I left the room. Like, and before I could even leave the school, yeah. I was crying like you're worthless. You're stupid. You should have done this before. 
And I sat down in my car and I had that same conversation. Like if you leave now, you will never get to where you want to be. Yeah. So I sucked it up. I went back. I sat in class. I don't remember anything for the rest of those three hours because I was so internalized yeah. and, and, and fear. And then I got like a three, nine, five in the class. You know, I could retain everything because I felt like they wrote the book about me. Right. Yeah. It's all <laughs> it's easy when you can I've attach it to, yeah. to everything you've been through. And For so sure. I just started finding, um, so much good in educating my, I, I went and talked to my, uh, professor after, and told him what I'm, what I was doing. He's like, if you're not going for a degree, go to the bookstore. And he gave me a list of books to buy, right. write your story down and study that get good at you. Mm-hmm. So I went home and I applied, you know, I was labeled bipolar anxiety disorder, PTSD, ADHD, sleep disorder, all these things. You just take them on like a yeah. missionary badge. Like, okay, this is what I am. Yeah. And when I started educating myself, that's not what, that's what I was experiencing. That's mm. not who I am. Right. You know, and just got really good at doing me and waging a war against the bad me and started speaking a lot. And, um, I got married and she had a teenage son and going from cage fighting to sitting at a doubleheader baseball game. (laughs) I was like, Hey buddy, you almost got up and you almost got a catch. What do you say? We do something else. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and he he picked wrestling, and uh, I wrestled. And, and you're like, yes, yeah. I'm like, right? yeah. I'm like, yeah. I'm gonna totally gonna come help. Yeah. So I'm four years sober at the time, and <laughs> I go into practice, and the people are like, uh, uh, "What is there something I can help you with?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, no, I'd like to volunteer." They're like, "Yeah, you can't be around kids without a background check." And I was like, "Well, no problem. You know, four years, I've got short memory." Yeah. And I go in and they're get fingerprinted and, and background check. And they're like, you'll know in two weeks. Thanks. And I got an email the next day that said, <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. And in that moment, I think this applies to a lot of us in yeah. recovery is because I was told no, I retracted back into that anger and insecurity and fearful. Yeah. And then I was like, wait a minute. I printed it out. I looked it over. It was like three pages long. Of course, being that looking at right. a paper, if you got the choice between no pages and three pages, sure. guy, you're going to take the no pages. Right. Yeah. So I set an appointment <laughs> with the Davis County School District and he didn't, I don't think he knew who I was. I came in and I pushed that across the, the desk and his eyes lit up and I was like, where would you like to start? He starts explaining and I started explaining back of yeah. what I'd been doing, why I was here. Yeah. Da, da, da. And by the end he was kind of teary eyed and he stamped it approved and said, we need more coaches like you. Wow. That's and awesome. uh, that started my journey in. This is my ninth season now. Really? Of Congratulations. Coaching. Yeah. That's amazing. And so before those first four years, I'm working with adults. I'm working with inmates coming out of prison because my fights were aired on out at the point. Out of the point, yeah. And <laughs> and I'm and it's great, but then I'm seeing the effect I have on these kids. I'm like, man, I've been wasting my time. I need to do, I need to do prevention. Yeah. Right. And and have this great success. I get my second year coaching ever. They give me a head coaching job at another school, and I'm working up and having these results. And then I'm finding that no matter what I do with these kids if the parents aren't educated as well, then they just get re-indoctrinated exactly. and come back disaster. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, fighting my whole passion now is like, we got to get back to the village. We got to get, let, let the people that wear the mental health hats, wear the mental health hats, the people that wear the yeah. spiritual hat. Like we all have a talent. We should just stick to that and let the, let the neighbors, the fake uncles and the fake grandparents <laughs> and, and all that yeah. stuff in your neighborhood, do the, do the work that they're good at. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so hard in this day and age. Everybody wants to do everything for their kids. Exactly. And then they end up falling off or mm-hmm. getting overwhelmed and yeah. not being the best parent they can be. When Julie down the street's been through some stuff and she's willing to work with your kid. Yeah. You know, so it's been, sure. I can't imagine, I don't do it for the money. Like I've been very successful in, in yeah. the coaching and and life coaching and recovery coaching and mental health field yeah. and fitness field. But I would do this if I was homeless mm-hmm. and I would do this if I was a billionaire. Yeah. There's just, we've got to yeah. allow those that have been through or been to hell to explain exactly. why that path sucks Yeah, and be more real and vulnerable with our neighbors 
And, you know, when I go out and speak, I ask everybody to stand up who knows somebody or personally experiences depression, anxiety, self-harm, or addiction. 100% of the people stand up. Yep. I tell them to look around. Say, how many of you feel comfortable talking about it? 97% sit down. <laughs> that's a problem. That is. You know? Yeah, that's and so we true, feel though. like we're alone. Yep. But every <clears throat> house on the block could identify with us if we were just brave enough to talk about it. Yeah. We got to get past that taboo nonsense that, oh, I don't want people to know what I'm going through. It's like, that's the cure. Yeah. You know, being more real, being more human. Authentic. Getting, you know, they all call it fake book or, (laughs) you know, it's great. Post your, post your wins, but we've got to get off. It's, it's a great tool. But we got to get back to the community barbecues and exactly. And oh, amen to that. I'm breakfasts and, yeah. and like truly knowing each other. Because guess what? If we have a natural disaster, and you're knocking on your next door neighbors like, "Hey, what was your name?" Uh, yeah, we're underwater yeah. over here. Like a yeah. lot of people I talk to don't even know their neighbors. Yeah, and that's a problem. That is a problem. That scares yeah. me. Yeah, for sure. So, so it's yeah. uh wow. Well, that's yeah. that's an amazing story. I mean, I know I've he- I've heard your story before, you know, via like YouTube and things like that. But to hear this sitting here, I mean, I'm getting emotional. And again, I love your passion um, and your drive. I can feel your that you are real. You, you don't mince words. You don't screw around. It's probably why you're so good as a wrestling coach. And, and you know <laughs> I, what I mean? Because yeah, you I, just don't, hey, you just get right to it, you know? That's what I, I love you kept saying over and over, leveling up. I need to level up. You know, this got taken from me. What are you going to do? You're going to go run and go the direction you were going before, or are you going to level up? Yeah. That was really powerful to hear that. I think I learned a lot about the destination mentality. Yeah. Is going to leave you empty a lot. Yeah. So I went to Nepal. And we went to Mount Everest Base Camp. And every time, Mm. hard day, massive mountain, get there. Is this it? Nope. (laughs) And that false summit. You think you arrive. You think you arrive. It's like, did you even know? Do you remember anything from the hike? Like, enjoy the journey. Yeah, enjoy it. The good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah. It's all beautiful. Yeah. So I don't even, whatever happens, happens. I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to learn from it. And I'm going to move along. Yeah. I I just. I wanted, you know, if I make this much money, I'll be happy. If I have this car, if I have this girl and you get there and it's just like, Hmm. Yeah. Now what? Yeah. But if you take the time to get to know the people along the journey or to smell the flower or to learn something about yourself, you don't got to be in such a hurry. Yeah. Hurry up to what? To what? Right. You know? So that's very well said. Well, I got a question for you. It's a different question, but I like asking this. What do you love most about you? Man. I think my willingness to get out of my own way. Mm. To allow mentors and loved ones to... Sometimes it's hard, but Mm -hmm. before you couldn't tell me nothing. (laughs) And I'm learning a lot from my daughter. You know, she developed in the sixth grade... She's now wrestling, which makes me super proud, but she doesn't want me to coach. Yeah. She's dealing with boys and I can't swoop in and save her. Yeah. You know, she's teaching me so much. My amazing girlfriend is so patient and doesn't fight back, which is in studio, by the way. Yeah. She's right here. It's just all these things that I can take. I don't have to take everything personal. Yeah. Like I did. Mm -hmm. I wasted 31 years of my life taking everything personal. Yeah. When none of it was. Yeah, wow. you know, I think that's a getting out of my own way. Yeah, I love that. Very I'm well a, said. I'm I'm very destructive when I'm driving. Yeah, literally and figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Rob, you've you've shared a lot of great things already, but I want to ask you another question. If there's someone listening to your voice right now who is struggling, who is in a dark place, who feels hopeless, that one person right now, what would you tell them? Get out of your own way. Pick up the phone. Call whoever it is that you need to call, whether that be 911, whether you have the money or not, get help because you are worth it. I would love to meet you and you have something to give this world. I operate 100% off of my fails. Those are my tools today. Yeah. Wow. I don't have any other magic things. It's all off of (laughs) (laughs) what not to do. PhD. Boom. Yeah. 
Well, it reminds me life happens for us. Absolutely. Look at what you went through and look what you wouldn't be doing what you're doing today. Absolutely. And you're doing so many great things. You're mentoring kids. You're helping kids who have been bullied, who are thinking of suicide, who are going through anxiety, depression, mental health. I mean, the list goes on. I, again, it's so impressive of the, the, the way you're giving back. I heard this once said, if you master the first 11 steps of AA, you will drink again. If you master step 12, you'll never touch another drop. Yeah. You, my friend, are the epitome of step 12. You're giving back. You're making a difference. And I think that's why you're just where you are, man. You're, you're a bundle of energy. And are you still cage fighting? <laughs> just at practice. <laughs> it's that weight cut. I'm yeah. too old for that weight well, cut. Well, you look like you could be, man. I look at you right now. It's pretty impressive. But I appreciate uh, that. if people want to reach out to you, Rob, and, you know, use your coaching or get to learn more about. I know you got a, a book that's eventually going to be coming out. Yep. Um, if they want to listen to your podcast, that kind of thing, what's the best way for them to do that? So I do most of my work on Instagram and it's tattooed life coach in the number eight. Mm. It's Rob Eastman on Facebook, but my uh, website is tattooed And then my podcast is everywhere and it is called stand and fight. Ooh, love that. So, which is basically that describes you perfectly, right? Yeah, I've got this yeah. tattoo. It says it's better to stand and fight. If you run, you will only die tired. And for me, Dang. I spent the first 31 years of my life running. I Dang. got sick of running. Yeah, that's, and that for our listeners, that's a tattoo on his uh, inner side of his bicep on his uh, left arm. It's beautiful. Thank you. You're an amazing person. So are you, and I appreciate you doing what you're doing. Thank you. Providing this platform for yeah. people like me to come on and share. Yeah. If it wasn't there, we wouldn't be able to help as many people as we do. So no. thank you to you too. And you're welcome. No, I appreciate that a lot, and it's good to collaborate and rub shoulders with like-minded people. Yeah, and and uh, I really do admire the way you live your life. I really do. You're you truly are an example. And, you know, I'll add, you know, if you're being bullied – like Rob was bullied. I mean, it started at such a young age. Yeah. I just want you to hear this, that he, he, he turned his life around. He obviously had help along the way. You had that loud answer behind the bountiful yeah. temple, <laughs> which really hit me hard. But I'm glad you're here because we need you, Rob. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, thanks for coming, and thanks for taking some time today. And You're a great man. Appreciate that. Yeah. Well, there you go, folks. I told you this was going to be amazing. Rob's amazing. Please check out his Instagram page, his Facebook page. You know, if you want to ask him a question, if for some reason you don't get to track him down, you know, reach out to me and I'll make sure that he gets that, that message as well. I love you guys. Please share this with anyone. Just like Rob said earlier, you know, how many of you in here have struggled with anxiety, depression, mental health, addiction, whatever? You all right now can raise your hand. Listen to this podcast. When you're done listening to this, share it with someone you know that needs to hear it as well. Let's get Rob's message out to as many people as we possibly can. Let's let's shoot for 500,000. I'm going to put it out there. We're going to do it. I'm serious. It. And We're I answer every message that comes in. I am definitely reachable. Yes, you. I love that about you too. That's awesome. So there you go, guys. Uh, again, thanks to our sponsors. And again, thanks for tuning in week after week. And Rob, thanks for all your time today. Yeah, I appreciate you. You're Thank awesome. You.